This is part two of our uh, topic, very important topic on gender, mitzvos, and halacha. I uh, hope everyone in, uh, who's on Zoom can hear me and can see. Uh, if there any questions, uh, please text me. Um, so let's get, continue. So last week we spoke about um, the sources for why there is a difference between men and women in mitzvos, where it comes from, the phenomenon of mitzvahs man grama, um, the fact that women are not obligated to those mitzvos. But we pointed out, of course, that there are many exceptions in, in both directions. There are examples of mitzvos which are not time-bound, and yet women are nevertheless exempt. We give the example of formal Torah study, Talmud Torah. And on the other hand, there are all sorts of exceptions in the other direction, where mitzvos seem to be very much zman grama, and yet women are obligated uh, in the mitzvos nonetheless. And those fall into two categories. Either because there's some underlying additional drasha, like Kiddush, Zachar Vashamur Badibur Echad, and alternatively, uh, things like Hanukkah, the Dalad Kosos, and Megillah, Afhein Hayib Osanes. And the Gemara itself was aware of this, this isn't like we or someone else, it wasn't a gotcha moment, we didn't catch the rabbi. The Gemara itself was aware that there are all sorts of exceptions. The Gemara says, yes, it's more of a rule of a thumb than it is a strict rule. And then we actually did a little bit of an exercise last week, and we tried to figure out exactly how many Muslims really are differentiated by gender. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, it is much less than the average person thinks. I think the number is eight. Uh, so that was a huge part of last week's shear. And of course, we introduced it by just discussing more generally and more broadly uh, the notion from various agadic sources about uh, the Torah's view of women, in which uh, we tried to posit, based on the sources that we quoted, which was clearly not exhaustive, could not have been, was not intended to be exhaustive, but to me, what are representative of what I think is the mainstream view, which is uh, separate but equal, or maybe better. Uh, that is to say, I think it's clear, and some of the sources we'll see today will reiterate this point, I think it's clear that the Torah's perspective is that men and women, categorically, obviously there are always a range of personalities, um, and there can be exceptions to the rules we just saw in halachic sense, but as a rule, and speaking in categorical terms, men and women are different, we very much believe in that separate, but many, many sources, uh, both from Chazal all the way to the 20th century, uh, reiterating that uh, that in no way impugns uh, the value of women. On the contrary, many sources explicitly talking about the ultimate sanctity, the Kedusha Shisrael, that Selma Lokim, that everyone has, is the same as men for men and women. And if anything, we saw a number of sources uh, that implied that there are certain parts of a woman's personality, even in certain intellectual dimensions of a woman, being a Yisera, certain spiritual aspects, the impact on the home, in which women are considered superior. So that was, uh, that was last week's year. So I want to follow up with two points um, this week, and we're going to do a reverse order, but we'll mirror last week's year in that we're going to do both halacha uh, and agada or machshava uh, or philosophy, however you want to call it. The halacha piece I want to discuss, which is very, very important, because we do have some mitzvot. So at the end of the day, obviously there are some mitzvot, eight, nine, whatever the number is, where women are exempt. What does that mean? Are women allowed to do the mitzvot? Are they encouraged to do the mitzvot? Are they not allowed to do the mitzvot? And if women are allowed or even encouraged to do the mitzvot, does that mean that they make a bracha on those mitzvot? Is it a, a real mitzvah? Or are you just like a little girl playing house? So when you were young, you played and you had like a tea party, and now you get older and I shake a little of it, and I'm playing grown-up. Is that, is that all it is? Or is it actually something much more significant, equivalent to the level of men doing mitzvot? Um, so that's the halachic discussion I want to discuss. Uh, and then we will discuss, uh, in the final part of the, the series, uh, some of the theories that have been suggested, going back to medieval period, all the way into 20th century, 
Why would Hashem do this? Why would the Torah do this? Why would there be a difference between men and women when it comes to mitzvahs? Okay, so that's our agenda. It's a bit ambitious, but we can do it with all of the uh, energy that I feel in the room. Not. Uh, we, we, we can do it. Okay. So take a look at your source sheet. It's very, very full, but we'll get through this. So it starts in a Gemara in Masech, the Rosh Hashanah, Taflam and Gimlam and Aleph, which presents an apparent contradiction. On the one hand, there's one source that implies that we do not allow women to blow shofar. Middle of the first line, Hanashim Ma'akvin. There's an inference that the tradition is the halacha would prohibit women from blowing shofar. On the other hand, the Gemara asked in the very next sentence, we have an explicit source, an explicit b'risa that says, Ein ma'akvin. Right, children don't have to hear shofar, women don't have to hear shofar, but according to this second tradition, it's explicit that there's no problem with a child blowing a shofar, there's no tra- problem with a woman blowing a shofar. So obviously the interest here today is the question of women, and the Gemara right away raises the contradiction. And in the second line, the Gemara says, it's not a contradiction, it's a machloket. There are different views. In fact, in the Tanaim, there is a machlokas. Rabbi Yehuda is of the opinion that women cannot blow shofar. Not allowed. I'm not talking about listening to shofar. I'm about blowing the shofar. And there's a second opinion, Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Shimon, hold that women can blow shofar. Now where does any of this come from? It's not a machlokas and shofar. It goes back to something which is completely far afield and for our perspective seems somewhat esoteric. It relates to the world of karbonos and everyone's favorite book of the Torah, Sefer Vayikra. In the opening of Sefer Vayikra, it teaches us a halacha. In certain cases, the details are not important for us at all now, in certain cases, when you bring a korban, the owner of the korban, before it's shechted, rests the hands on the korban. That is the original usage of the term, smicha. Rest your hands on the korban. And the, the Gemara clearly understands that men, in these cases, are obligated, if they're bringing this korban, to do the smicha. However, based on a pasuk, right in the beginning of Sefer Vayikra, we learn that women are not obligated to do this. But this begs the question, if a woman brings a carbon, which she's allowed to bring many different kinds of carbonos, in some cases a woman is chayv to bring a carbon, would the woman rest her hands? She's not obligated to. But what if she wants to rest her hands on the carbon? Which, if I may say, is another way of saying what this was the original question of, can women have smicha? This is the question, not a 20th century question. Can women have smicha? Not about being rabbis. Can women have smicha? Can they rest their hands on the karbon? And the Gemara here says, this is the end of source number one, that this was the original source of the machloket. The first opinion, Rabbi Yehuda says, Ein benos Yisrael somchot. Last line of source number one. Women are not allowed. Once they're not obligated, they're also not allowed. After all, his opinion seems to be somewhat reasonable. In general, we don't let people do mitzvah, touch, play around with karbonos. I'm a, I'm a levy or a Yisrael. Can you just start walking to the base of Megdish and start touching the karbon? That's a Kohen's job. So if uh, someone's obligated to be touching the karbon, okay. But if not, not. That seems to be the simple reading. If I would just land it from Mars, why would he be against it? Simple. However, the Gemara quotes a second opinion. Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Yossi, or Shimon, Rabbi Yossi say, Nashim Somchos Rishus. Women are obligated but if they want, they can. And what the Gemara is saying is that that's considered a paradigm. It's not just a question of Meheri Ibn Hamikdash, 
will you be able to put your hands on the carbon? That's the original machloket. But that's considered a paradigm for all other examples of mitzvahs in which a woman is not obligated. So the Gemara is giving an example of shofar, but we presumably would say the same thing about, presumably, just based on some reading of the Gemara, about lulav, about other things. Can a woman do a mitzvah she's not obligated in? Is it all or nothing? Or is this in-between category exist? That is a machlokas. Okay? Now, I speculated, just based on the simple reading of the Gemara, why we might prohibit it. Why, why would we permit it? Why should it be allowed? Again, pretend you didn't you know, live your life as a firm Jew, your whole life. Right? Why should it be allowed? If you're not supposed to do it, that's what... So take a look at source number two. The Gemara in Chagiga, and there's other sources that say this as well, but I just gave you one example. Source number two. The Gemara in Chagiga quotes an explanation, which we don't have in the original Gemara Masechad Rosh Hashanah. The Gemara Chagiga says, you know why the opinion that allows women to do the smicha, I'll permit it? Isn't that interesting? Way before that was remotely fashionable, uh, and certainly before uh, an enlightenment, a modernity, or a feminist movement, says the Gemara, it'll make women feel better. Feel happy. I can, I, you could read this in a cynical, patronizing way. I don't think there's any reason to read it that way. I think it's very genuine. A, a woman comes to a base of Megdash, for whatever reason she needs to bring a carbon. Not all, they have the option. That's the beauty of Rishus. You have an option to say no too. But if a woman wants to bring a carbon, she might feel. You could add in the blank. I don't even need to speculate what the, all the good reasons, all the v- variety of reasons why a woman might want to do it. So by allowing her to do it, why not? This is going to make her feel more connected, more spiritual, more valued, whatever the reason is. I don't even have, okay, I'm speculating, but I don't even need to speculate. Whatever the reason would be, this would be something that a woman would want to do. Lamalo, why not give nachas ruach l'nashim? Okay, so now, halachically, what's very interesting is that uh, what I thought was a simple reading of the Gemara about why you disagree with that. You know, I'll, now let's, you know, it's like ping pong, let's reverse it. Who wouldn't want to give nachas ruach l'nashim? Like, you know, like women, why, why wouldn't you want to, if someone would be happy, why not? Why would, why would the other opinion disagree? So what I had suggested is a simple understanding. Um, if I'm right, if I'm right, we have a problem. What was my theory? My theory was it's only based on the fact that, you know, if you're not obligated to touch a carbon, who gave you a right to do it? Are you a Kohen? But if that would be the case, what's that going to do with chauffeur? What would that have to do with Lulav? So this clearly bothered the Mepharshim. In particular, it leads to a very famous, but I think controversial and debatable, to put it mildly, Comment of Rashi. Rashi says, you know what the problem is? It's actually not limited to carbon. Source number three, Baal Tosef. Baal Tosef means it's a pasuk in the Chumash, nothing to do with women's issues per se. It's about also certain 13 mitzvahs, so men and women. Hashem in His infinite wisdom designed the Torah. Why are you supposed to take four species with the lulav and not five and not three? Why does a, tf- why does a tefillin have four compartments and not three and not five? I don't know. But if you decide, oh, I love you so much, Hashem, I'm going to take a fifth species. I was taking a tiul, and I saw this new species, and I think this is an incredible, I want to do that one too. I'm going to add that to my lulav and my esrog and my das and my rabos. Or, as far as I'm concerned, sukkahs could be 12 days. That's how great it is. I love to be with Hashem. Oh, I feel the shechina in the sukkah. I'm... That's not allowed. Well, you, you, all of a sudden, you may, who made you smarter than God? That's called baltosif. You can't add. Sometimes less is more. Right? You cannot add, right? A pinch of salt could make the, could make the dish. Too much ruins it. Baal Tosef. Says Rashi. Smicha B'Karban is not Baal Tosef, that Hashem wants. Blowing a shofar Hashem wants. But for whatever reason, in His infinite wisdom, 
God did not obligate women to do that. For them to volunteer to do that, says Rashi, is a violation of Baltosif. That's Rashi's theory. Now, the advantage, let's think critically here, the advantage of Rashi, if he's right, is that would explain why it's not limited to the carbon. It would apply to all these cases. On the other hand, many Mepharshim are bothered by Rashi in a very significant way. Again, we don't have time to get into it now, but this does not at all seem to track with the usual application of Baltosif. Baltosif, as I, I'll just say very briefly, as I alluded to before, Baltosif usually means taking an existing mitzvah and manipulating it, even from the best of intentions. The lul is supposed to look this way, and I enlarged it. The tefillin is supposed to look this way, and I expanded how many things I write in the tefillin, etc., etc. This is not that. This is not changing the mitzvah. This is just a population group women in this case, but it could have been a different population group, saying, we want to do mitzvah, we're not obligated. What's it got to do with Baltosif? Baltosif is changing the mitzvah itself, not who does a mitzvah. You hear the difference? But Rashi, again, disagrees with what I just said, evidently. But I think that's the reason that most Mepharshim are not happy with Rashi. Yeah, sure. But does Rashi see this in other cases where people are other? So it's interesting. There are other... I, I'm not sure that he does, but we don't have necessarily Gemaras that talk about that. But there is one Gemara. There is one Gemara which... I don't think it's a contradiction to Rashi, but in theory, if we had more time, like if this was like a multi, multi-part series, I would have been, we definitely could have included, which is that there's an entire corpus of text, which is not gender-specific at all. It's for anybody, which is the category of being an Eino Mitzvah Let's say I'm not obligated to do something. Am I allowed to do that? Right? Not in the context of carbon, and then that got applied to shofar. In a broad context, without any, any examples, the Gemara just discusses what is the status of an eno mitzuve v'osef? Someone who does something that they weren't obligated in. And the Gemara's conclusion is, you get less reward than the person who was obligated. Why? Not our topic right now at all. But that, now, what do you see, though, from that? There doesn't seem to be any problem with doing it. The only question is, is how much reward you're getting. But there, the Gemara doesn't mention any problem with a person volunteering for a mitzvah. So you say, oh, that's against Rashi. It's not against Rashi. It's against the whole opinion that says no carbon. And maybe you say Rashi's interpretation of it. But I'll, get, I'll make it more complicated. There's a different, a third passage in the Gemara, which doesn't give any nuance, no explanation, but just says in a vacuum, anyone who does something that they're not obligated in, nikra hedjot, which is a very not nice way of Chazal saying you're an idiot. You're a fool. Very critical. So all the Mepharshim asked that these Gemaras, again, not with some sensitivity to gender in the 20th century. The, the, the sources just seem to contradict. Now Rashi, again, is a step below. Rashi is a Rishon, not a Gemara. But the Gemaras themselves seem to contradict. So it's part of a larger puzzle, which we're only touching on. But whatever motivated Rashi in this case to say it, I, I, don't, I know, I don't think, we would know, there's no way to know. But again, forget any gender sensitivities, just from a strictly halachic, Talmudic perspective, it's a very difficult Rashi. I'm schwitzing a little bit because this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to try to figure out, you know, we don't just say, oh, Rashi's wrong. You know, not a, on, a, on any topic, not just on this topic. We try to, even if we don't possibly like Rashi, we want to understand him. So I'm suggesting that what motivated Rashi, um, again, I, can, I can make a logic to it, number one. Number two is by creating a more generic meta explanation that explains why it wouldn't be limited to just smicha. You could take it and then start applying it. The problem, like in anything in life, is the more broad you make it, who said your broad category is true. Which is why other Mepharshim don't like Rashi. And if you take a look at source number four, 
already in the time of the Rishonim, Tosvot give a completely different explanation. And what's the point of Tosvot source number four? Tosos is the anti-Rashi in the sense that Tosos is Dafka not giving some overall meta-explanation about why women should be doing mitzvot. Rather, says Tosvot, it's, the, a, it's not a coincidence that the Gemara only mentions this about two things. Gottlieb assumed that once you see it goes from smicha, hop, skip, to shofar. Oh, that's also an example we'd apply to Lulav and to Sukkah too. To, and again, if you, if you hold like Rashi, maybe that would be true. But Tosa says, no, the Gemara only mentions two cases. Don't rest your hands on the carbon and don't blow a shofar. Why not? So Tosa and Tosa number four say each one of them have their own specific narrow reason. But it has nothing to do with whether a woman should go into a sukkah or not. Whether a woman should go into, take a lulav or not. What does Tosa say number four? That blowing a shofar, if it wouldn't be a mitzvah to blow a shofar on Rosh Hashanah, it would be mutter. Can you blow a trumpet on Rosh Hashanah? Yeah, this is not the topic. We're not doing Hilchos Yantif now. But we don't play musical instruments on Yantif. Shofar, if it wouldn't be a mitzvah, it would have been Usr. So it says Tosos, you can't just blow a shofar if you're not obligated. If you're not obligated, then for you, again, I'm, I'm using the term the way our kids use the term. I don't mean really this way. But, you know, our kids, when they reach a, a certain stage of our kids' lives, every single thing you can't do on Shabbos is muksa. Right? Right? That's just, it's a catch-all word for Usr. So, I'm intentionally acting a child for a moment. Tosa says, you know why you can't blow the show for Rosh Hashanah? It's muksa. If you're obligated, that pushes off the prohibition. But if you're not obligated, then it's a regular old prohibition. And in a similar vein, in a similar vein, says Tosa at the end of source number four, there's also other local reasons not to put your hands on the carbon if you're not obligated. After all, not that it would really, really be a violation of working with a, with a carbon, but he says, it would be maris ayin. And it would give the appearance that it's okay even when you're not obligated. Maybe, maybe, maybe now a non-Kohen is going to think they can work on the carbon. So it's not some global thing. Each one of those specific examples in the Gemara had their reason why, according to one opinion, okay, it's only one opinion, thinks you shouldn't do it. So I just want to, so we can really make some serious practical progress in a moment. We, we started this year with the more intense, I guess you could say, uh, abstract or theoretical stuff. But just so we shouldn't lose track of the bigger picture, where are we? We have a debate. Again, the only examples in the Gemara are smicha, on the carbon, and shofar. And about those we have a debate. A woman are allowed or they're not allowed. What we just spent the last few minutes doing is trying to figure out why would anyone say they're not allowed. And we saw two theories. Either there's some global theory of Baltosif, that's Rashi, or maybe each of those two examples have their own reasons. But remember, all of that is only on this side. That's all assuming the women are prohibited. There was a whole other opinion in the, in the Gemara. The women are permitted to do all these things. And in the Gemara, and it's also in the Medrash, the reason giving, just because a person's not obligated doesn't mean they may not want to do it. A lot of reasons why a person might want to volunteer for something. And if there's no reason not to, why not let them? That's the machlokas. Well, I'll take your question one second now. So what do we have to do right now? Meaning right after we take Ali's great question. Is, well, of course, the million dollar question. What's the halacha? Now we understand what the rationale would be between the two sides, but we need to figure out what the psak is. Are you allowed to do it or not? Yes, Ali. Um, the question I have is, is, is the smicha, is there is no concept of tahara there? Like, is that, does that play into it at all for women as far as their, uh, the, you know, I mean, the, 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 the answer... That's where I would go when it comes to 
The answer is yes, but the assumption is that a woman would be tahara for a simple reason that she wouldn't be allowed in the base of Migdash if she wasn't. Men and women are prohibited from entering the base of Migdash if they're not tahara. Like that's a very serious avera. It's a very, very serious avera. And that's nothing to do with women. That has, that's, not, that's not a gender issue. So obviously if she's already in the base of Migdash, we're assuming that she's tahara. But, but, but could it be that that's why she's not obligated to because it's more... Oh, I don't know. That's, okay, like, maybe. This I don't know. This I don't know. This, this, again, that, what we're going to do on the second half of the shear, and, the second, and it worked out beautifully, so literally the second half of the page, the back half of the page, which is we're going to speculate, do a little philosophy. Why? We'll ask the why question. Why would the Torah exempt women from mitzvahs? So again, there's a whole, I'm sure you, maybe over the years you've studied this in, uh, in various shurim, etc. There's a whole enterprise called Tamiya Mitzvot. So there's a, I, I, didn't, I did not do, maybe I should have, I did not look into the Mepharshim, why would women be exempt from, specifically from smicha? Maybe someone says what you said, I have no idea. This I just simply don't know. And then, you and then, and then it wouldn't necessarily be an extrapolation to say that Shobah or Lulav or whatever doesn't necessarily... Could be, again, that's clearly part of the machloka between Rashi and Tosvot. Not only why would one opinion say women can't do it, but they're all, Rashi and Tosvot are also having another debate, which is, is this a paradigm for all examples of Zman Grama, or just those two? Right? The Rashi and Tosvot actually argue, I, I would say, on two levels. Anyway, bottom line, for all of the schwitzing that we did, and this is, you know, welcome to the world of the base matters, this is what we do. Uh, we, we, we try to understand all the opinions, whether we pass them like them or not. Take a look at source number five and for, source number six. I give you two of the, the, of the most prominent Rishonim uh, and two representative examples. Again, it's not universally agreed, but the mainstream view and the one that we accept, Lahalacha, as echoed and articulated both in source number five by the Rosh, prominent in his own right, but he's quoting someone even before him, the Rubenu Tam, one of the most famous of the Baal Yatosvot, as well as source number six, the Rambam. What is the Halacha? The majority view by far is we paskin nashim somchot rishos. Women are allowed to do mitzvos even though they are not obligated. Uh, just take a look, because it'll probably grab your attention. We'll, we won't read source number five inside, but that's what the Rush quotes from Rabbeinu Tam. The Rambam says it very explicitly. What's interesting is, what's the example where the Rambam is very famous for saying this? Talus or tzitzis. A woman who wants to put on tzitzis, mit'atvin below bracha. We'll get back to the bracha a little bit later. And then once the Rambam says women can wear talus, he says, It's not just talus, it's not just tzitzis. Any, any mitzvah that a woman is exempt from, im rotsu la sososan, if she wants, she's not obligated, but if she wants to do it, she could do it. Now again, he adds without a bracha, again, we're going to get to the bracha in a few minutes. I don't want to get into the bracha this moment. Okay? Now, just in case you're confused, again, if someone wants, maybe one day we'll give an entire shear uh, on women in talus, women in tzitzis, but no one should think that they should be wearing tzitzis or talus. By the time you get to the Shulchan Aruch, we possibly, the women should not wear uh, tzitzis or talus. But it's, that is a reason which is both historically comes after the Rambam and it is not based on the inner issues or the issues of Mitzah Seishazman Graman specifically. Over the centuries, there were later Achronim who felt that there was something uniquely problematic with women wearing tzitzis and that is what is accepted in Shulchan Aruch. If you look at Shulchan Aruch, it says women should not wear uh, talus. Um, but that, it's just fascinating that it's obvious, you see it right on the page, yeah, I don't know that it was common in the time of the Rambam. I have no idea if anyone did it in the time of the Rambam. But it's obvious. You don't have to take my word for it. You just have to read the Rambam's own words. If you, if you would have asked, if you were living in the time of the Rambam, and you would have asked the Rambam as a woman, can I wear a talus? I assume you would have said yes, because he just did. Okay, so that's something that has, you know, from the time of the Rambam, again, I'm not saying it ever was done. I have no idea. But the Rambam wouldn't have upset, wouldn't, wouldn't objected to it. By the time you get to the Shulchan Aruch, so the Halacha, you know, uh, parts ways. But again, there are two examples, which, as you both, as you all know, even as well or better than me, there are only two examples where we generally say this: talus and tefillin. 
But generally, lulav, shofar, sukkah, all these things, women uh, are not obligated necessarily, but it, are generally permitted and even encouraged uh, to do. That is based on the fact that we just, again, it's a debate. And not everyone agrees with this, but the psak, which is accepted in Shulchan Aruch, and is by far the mainstream psak, is that women are allowed to do that. We paskin, nashim, samchos, roshos, women can do mitzvahs that they're not obligated in. Whatever the reasons that Rashi and Tosos gave, they were only giving them in the opinion that disagreed, but we don't paskin like that opinion that disagrees, we paskin like the opinion that says women can do those mitzvahs. So now comes the question, what about a bracha? Well, we just saw that the Rambam says, yes, a woman would shake a lulav. The woman would blow a shofar, presumably, if she wants, or listen to a shofar, and a woman would go into a sukkah. But the Ramam says clearly, we saw it, she would not make a bracha. But not everyone agrees with that. Take a look at source number 7, 8, and 9. Big discussion in the Rishonim. And the name that gets repeated multiple times, as you see in source number 7 and source number 8, is Rabbeinu Tam. Again, Rabbeinu Tam was one of the foremost, most prominent Bali Atosvos, one of the most influential Rishonim, Bal Halacha, in all of Jewish history, on uh, anyone's uh, top 20 list, uh, one of the great, great, greats uh, of all time. Rabbeinu Tam is adamant, and he's, he's quoted a number of places, Nashim Yecholot Levarech, disagrees with the Rambam. Women can't, not only are they allowed to do the mitzvah, they can make a bracha. Now what's the issue? What are they debating? So the Rambam doesn't say a word. The Rambam does not explain. Rambam just says women can't make brachas. But from those who argue on the Rambam, two possible reasons emerge. It's not clear which one the Rambam or both was motivated by, but there are two issues that are brought up. And you see this explicitly in source number seven, and then again, especially in source number nine. In source number seven, one theory is proposed. What do you think? Why would you say a woman shouldn't make a bracha even if she's doing the mitzvah? Okay, that's the second reason. That's not what I thought we were going to say, but that's okay. We'll get to that. That is the second reason. What would be the other reason you might think? Why should a person not say Baruch HaTashem and Okeinu Melchah? Ali, cheating does not count. I asked, why do you think? Not what did you read? Anyone have any, any suggestions? Good, excellent. So one theory, which is the first one that's mentioned in source number seven, is maybe the problem is, if you're not obligated to take Hashem's name, who said you can? Isn't that one of the Ten Commandments? Lotisa, not take, don't take God's name in vain. So maybe, maybe that's why people say women shouldn't make a bracha. But at least in the opinion of Rabbein Tom, source number seven, he says, no, that's not a good reason. If that's the reason, I disagree with it. He says, because that's not really what the prohibition of Lotisa means. That's not in vain. That's in the context of a bracha. Stam, randomly, you know, saying God, and I don't just mean G-O-D, I mean the actual Hebrew name of God, that, without any good reason... That's taking God's name in vain. But according to almost all Rishonim, that's not, if you make a bracha that you weren't obligated in, that is not an obligation, a uh, violation, excuse me, of, uh, of Lotisa. And that is what the, uh, Rush says here in the name of Rabbeinu Tam explicitly. If you have no purpose, vain, right? In vain means for no purpose. But here a woman is saying a bracha because she has a mitzvah to do. That's not in vain. Even if you thought she was wrong, it's not in vain. And who said she's even wrong? So it says Rabbeinu Tam, that wouldn't be a good reason. What would be a second reason to disagree? So that's what was mentioned as well, which is, and th- take a look at the bottom of source number seven, Hech te'amar v'tzivanu. Right? V'tzivanu means I am commanded. Every time you make a bra, asher kereshav, v'tzivanu. 
But if you're not commanded, how can you say commanded? You're lying. And many, many of the Mepharshim think that this is really what was bothering the Rambam. And yet, Rabbeinu Tam still disagrees. Why does he still disagree? So if we take a look at source number 9, again, another one of the Rishonim, the Ran Rabbeinu Nisim, he says, it's not a problem. Lo kasha. Which is another way of saying, I'll say it in a sharper, in a shorter, more succinct way. It doesn't say I was commanded. We were commanded. It's not a made up thing. There's a the mitzvah called Chofar. There's a mitzvah called Lulav. We were commanded. And even though it's true, a woman was not commanded. But it's not disingenuous and certainly not dishonest to say we, the Jewish people, were commanded. And a woman is shaykh to the Jewish people. Not only is she shaykh to the Jewish people, she's getting reward for doing this. She's not a foreigner to this. Yes, on a tactical level, she's not obligated. And if there was some, I don't know, someone will conjugate it uh, correctly uh, uh, in Hebrew, but if the Lashon would have been, that I was commanded, that would maybe be a problem. Just dishonest, not true. But to say, Vitzivanu, says the Ran, not a problem at all. It's not about you personally. It's not about me personally. It's about the Jewish people. And a woman is just as connected to the Jewish people as a man. And she's going to get reward. Again, not as much for those mitzvahs. Just like I wouldn't get as much if I was doing mitzvah. I wasn't obligated in. That's not a gender issue. That's, that, that, that's true for men and women. But therefore, that bottom line is that's the machlokas. This is a major machlokas. Again, way before these were sensitive or political issues, this is a major machlokas going back hundreds of years. Can women make a bracha on mitzvahs that they're not obligated in or not. And this is a machloket. Many mafarshim, but we'll say Rabbeinu Tam is the model of the ones who says yes. And others, primarily the Rambam, says no. So now we're up to our second million dollar question. How do we paskin on this question? Let's read source number 10 together. I know it's not the fall, but let's pretend it's already Rosh Hashanah. Sukkot is in the air. Apples and honey are all around the table. And we're now thinking about shofar blowing. Says the Shulchan Aruch, source number 10. Af al-pisha nashim peturos, yichalot litkoa, which we're not surprised by, we already have seen that. That's our psak. Women are allowed to do mitzvos that they are not obligated in. Says the Shulchan Aruch, if one wants to blow shofar for herself, assuming she knows how, no problem for a woman to blow shofar. Aval, says the Shulchan Aruch, ein mevarchos. No bracha. Because who's the Shulchan Aruch following? The Rambam. Shulchan Aruch is following the Rambam, which, for those who are not familiar, is very, very common. Not always, not, it's not a dogma, but it is a good rule of thumb. Shulchan Aruch, more often than not, follows the Rambam. Shulchan Aruch says women should not make, they can do the mitzvah. And presumably, and it's true, I just didn't give you the example, that would be true for lulav, that would be true, you wouldn't say leishe basukah, you wouldn't say antilas lulav. That's the Shulchan Aruch's psak. Continue reading. At the end of the line is the Ramah, right? Rav Moshe Iserlish, right? Famous Rav in Krakow. He wrote the Ashkenazic notes, the Ashkenazic glosses to the Shulchan Aruch. Says the Ramah, Vahaminhag. Who's he talking about Minhag? He means, very specifically, he means Polish women. But more broadly, he means Ashkenazic women. Haminhag, what's the common custom? Not like this. That rather, Shanashim, Mavarchos, women do make brachos. Now, where did. And for anyone who's listening to the recording who was listening on Zoom, my computer just died. I forgot to plug it in last night. Sorry about that. Okay, nothing personal. They're going to miss the good stuff. No, just kidding. It was all good. Okay. Um, so the Ramah says, the women do make brachas. Why? Because obviously, who's the Ramah suggesting the Ashkenazic position follows? 
Rabbeinu Tam, which, for those who are not familiar, is also somewhat common. Again, no rules, but good rule of thumb. In other words, what seems to have happened, pretty compellingly, is that in the time of the Rishonim, and it gets carried down to the Shulchan Aruch, there's a machlokes between the Ashkenazic tradition and the Sephardic tradition. The Sephardic tradition followed the Rambam. The women, even if they do the mitzvot, don't make a bracha. And Ashkenazic tradition is that not only women can make, can do the mitzvot, but they can make a bracha. Now the truth of the matter is, this is overwhelmingly the minog adayomazeh. I've never heard of an Ashkenazi woman whose family or her personal practice is not to make the brachos. That's based on the Ramot, going back to the Rebbeinu Tam. And in the Sephardi community, it is predominantly the case. It's actually not exclusively the case, because in the various uh, tshuva literature over the centuries, there is a minority view within the Sephardic tradition that breaks with the Rambam, that breaks with the Shulchan Aruch. And at least in this one case, thinks that the Ashkenazim got it right. Um, I'll tell you a cute story, and for those of you who are familiar, uh, who like puns uh, and good uh, sharp elbows, uh, and who know the Megillus Esther well, you'll appreciate this. So again, there is this minority view in the Sephardic community uh, that women can make brachos. Ravavad Yosef held stark, 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 women should not make brachos. And this is part of an overall view of Ravavad Yosef. Whatever Maran HaMechaber says, that's correct. The whole Torah goes through Shulchan Aruch, according to Yosef, according to Rav Yosef. So if, if, if the Rav Machaber says, Rav Yosef Karas says, women should make a bracha, Nebuchadnezzar, my Ashkenazi brothers, but certainly a Sephardiyah, chas v'shalom. So he, it's bad enough that some Sephardim disagree, from a, I mean, not, not from my perspective, from Rav Yosef's perspective, it's bad enough that there are some Sephardim who disagree. Malasot. But it happens to be a contemporary of Rav a great Ashkenazi posek, the Tzitz Eliezer, Eliezer Voldenberg. He was, I'm not sure if he had, he had one very famous formal position. He was for many years the postic of Sharitzedek Hospital. I'm not sure if he had any other formal position, but he was just known as one of the great postkim of the generation in, in Yerushalayim, one of the great Chachmei Yerushalayim. He wrote many, many sforim, prolific author, great postic, has a lot of controversial psakim, but okay, that's what it means to be a postic, you take positions. Anyway, he has a tshuva in which he tries to show that really, 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 not only Ashkenazi women, but Svardiyah women, they should also, Svardiyot, they should also make brachos. That this was too much for Ravadja. Like, hello? You stand your side of the aisle. Or uh, let me better say it. You stand your side of the Mechitza. Tzitzeliezer. A chutzpah. You're going to tell Svardiyot what to do? Says Ravadja. Do Svardiyot not have their own poskim? Hagam wrote Lichbosh HaSamalka. Imi Babayis? That's a quote from the Tshuva, which is, of course, a quote from Megillus Esther. When Achashverosh returns and he sees Haman on the bed with Esther, you want to take the queen even when I'm in the house? A chutzpah! You can't even wait till I'm at... There's Mela, there's no Sephardi poskim, the Sephardim were orphans. Some Nebuch, some Ashkenazi will be a patronizing figure and help. But we're not low Alman Sephardim. We're not, we're not orphans. You got me? A chutzpah, stand your side of the Mechitza. To me, it's one of the great back and forth in halachic literature. Again, when you spend all your day learning, you need to find these things to like, you know, make yourself, you add a little spice to your life. When I first read that tshuva, I was like on a high for weeks. Even if I disagreed with Ravadi, just what a brilliant, you know, line, you know, it's just, if you, if you appreciate the art of language and writing, how brilliant. Anyway, that's the bottom line. So if you have any Sephardi friends, cousins, or relatives, uh, most likely they're not going to make brachos. If they do, just don't tell Ravadi Yosef or his children, because um, there is a minority view within the Sephardim that does promote women making brachos, uh, but do not recommend as an Ashkenazi you telling any Sephardi what to do. Uh, that's a general rule, but especially in this topic, yeah. So what happens when the blowing and the women coming after 
the regular man, and the woman makes the bracha, and the man blows the shofar, and the surviving man, what, what would happen? There's no bracha. The no bracha. No bracha. Okay? Now, last thing before we turn the page, which is something very, very fascinating, and this I think is worth mentioning. I, I alluded to this at the beginning of this year, but let's revisit it. All this, when we say women can do these mitzvos, even the phrase, which again, could be understood in different ways, la'asot nachas ruach l'nashim, what does that mean? Are we really saying, is that just an explanation of the motivation of why we're permitting it? But tachlas, once we permit it, a woman's mitzvah is just as authentic as a man's mitzvah? Or is it a nice way of saying, you know, it's okay, let them play, let them play religion. It's not real. It's just nachas ruach l'nashim. I think if you just read the text and you're being open about it, theoretically you could read it either way. Theoretically. But I think it would be a mistake because I think it's clear that the predominant view, overwhelmingly predominant view, is that in fact, while technically on the level of obligation, yes, there's a difference, but in terms of the significance of the mitzvah act itself, the integrity of the mitzvah act itself, a woman's mitzvah is just as, has just as much integrity, just as much significance as a man's mitzvah. And this I say not only from some important 20th century sources. Take a look, I gave you one example in the Rishonim, source number 11. The Ramban has a phrase, which is, again, I hope I can help provide you the context, but you could easily over, you know, overlook this, but it is an incredible significance, this language of the Ramban, and it's very, very famous. It says the Ramban, source number 11, it's true that women are distinguished from men in these seven, eight examples where women are not obligated and men are. But nevertheless, even though it's a Rishus, he, he, he coins a phrase. The Ramban is coining a phrase here. It's a reshus de mitzvah. Which is his way of saying, the reshus is not that the mitzvah is on a lower level. It's that a woman's not obligated. Think of it like if you remember an old-fashioned film, right? It's, or, or like a comic strip, right? They're different boxes, right? So the reshus part, the fact that it's not obligatory, is in its own box. What's that box? Must I or may I? The answer is a woman is a may, not a must. She's allowed, but she doesn't have to. But if a woman chooses, she walks through the door, and she does that mitzvah, now you're in a different box. In that box, says Ramban, when she's doing the mitzvah, there's no difference between her mitzvah and a man's mitzvah. That's what he's saying. It's a rishus the mitzvah. The difference is, he says, rock that, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was mitzvah the man, and the nashim, he left it a rishus. That's box number one. Yes, there is that difference. But if she chooses to walk through the box and go to the door and do the mitzvah, it's just as much a mitzvah as if a man would do it. In the 20th century, I'm skipping a few centuries obviously, but source number 12 and 13, you have two of the great, great achronim. Um, one from the earlier part of the 20th century and one who lived until uh, much more recently. Rabbi Chanan Wasserman, was a great Rosh Hashiva in Lithuania. He actually died on Kiddush Hashem. He was killed by the Nazis. And source number 12, at his shiurim, he gave him Baranovich, the famous yeshiva in Lithuania, and source number 12. And even more recently, in source number 13, was Rav Gustman. Rav Gustman was one of the great dayanim in pre-war Europe on the Bezdin of Vilna with Rav Chaim Ozegrodzinski. He survived the war hiding out in the forest as a partisan. He had two children. His son was shot in front of his eyes. Um, and his daughter, who I believe, I think, is even still alive. Uh, she's, but uh, anyway, they, they survived the war. They used to live in Brooklyn. And then they made... Parkway. Eastern Parkway. And then they made Aliyah uh, to Rechavia. 
So if you've ever seen that, in, I forget the name, is it Ramban Street? There are the famous Shul Netzach Yisrael. That used to be his yeshiva, and his children, uh, again, it's a daughter and son-in-law, I don't know how many grandchildren there are now. Uh, they run that, and it became more of a shul and a community center in Rechavia, now, in the heart of Rechavia. That was his yeshiva. Anyway, when he, so when he, he published Svarim called Kuntrasei Shurim, that's source number 13. So two, again, he was also one of the great, great geniuses in Gedolim of the 20th century. These are two of the greatest. And they both pick up on this theme of the Ramban and others, and they point out that it has many halachic consequences, that we view the mitzvahs of women no less than the mitzvahs of men, even when they're not obligated. If they're obligated, then it's obvious. If we're, if we're both obligated to eat matzahs, then of course it's the same. If we're both prohibited from eating chametz, then of course it's the same. But even in the seven or eight examples where it's not the same, they point out, this is not hashkafa, this is not like a shir just to give a seminary student. This is the shir they were giving the male students. That from a halachic perspective, not just hashkafa, from a halachic perspective, it's the exact same thing. What's the exa- they give two proofs for this, at least two proofs for that. One is, for example, again, we, again, I'm not talking halacha lamaisa now because women don't wear talisim. But once upon a time, a woman could wear talis. And once upon a time, there was unquestionable tchelas. The halacha is that if you were fulfilling the mitzvah of tchelas, it could even be with shatnas. Something called asay dochalot asay. The mitzvah asay of fulfilling the mitzvah of midaraisa with tchelas would even have permitted if you're wearing wool and linen tchelas. Let's say a woman is volunteering to wear a talis. She doesn't have to. Does she have a right to not only do that, but to do shotness also? And they quote numerous Mepharshim and say, yes. Yes, if a woman was wearing a talis at the time of the Rambam, and it had tchelas, or let's go back to Chazal, she'd be able to do it even if it was shotness, just like a man. How could it be? If the woman's mitzvah was any less than the man's, it's one thing if there's no downside, but you would let a woman do what would otherwise be shotness? This is no, of course. It has to be, it must be, that a woman's mitzvah is just as good as a man's, and therefore it even has the power, think of an arm wrestle, it has the power to push off shotness. Or what about putting your hand on the carbon? We pass into women's allowed. What do you mean? You can't, you're not allowed to just stomp, put your hands on carbonos. Only if there's a mitzvah. Okay, men are obligated, women are not obligated. He says, no, once she's doing it, her mitzvah has the same status as a man's. It will even push off touching carbonos, shotness, and then Rabbi Chanon in source number 12 says, and he thinks this is the deeper reason why women say brachos, according to the Ashkenazic tradition. Because once she's doing the, bra- the mitzvah, her mitzvah is no less than a man's, and therefore she can make a bracha. If you thought, forget the technical reasons, maybe it's God's name in vain, how could she say v'tzivanu, those are real. But let's be honest, those are quite narrow technical reasons. Says Rabbi Chanon, I'd have a much more fundamental problem. If a woman's mitzvah was something less than a man's, how could she say a bracha? The answer is, it's not less than a man's. Once she's doing it, it has the same status as a man's. And last but not least, source number 13, this is going back to Rav Gusman, this is his chiddish, and I think it's so powerful, and here it's kind of borderline on hashkafa, but I say that unapologetically in Musr, says Rav Gusman, source number 13. When What's his final, it says, once we've gotten to this conclusion, which he's convinced, he's convinced with every fiber in his being, that this is true, once that's the case, you have less choice than you thought. I'm anti-choice. I'm not pro-choice. Neither was a vachana. He says, don't think, uh, every day I wake up on Rosh Hashanah, every year, I could, I could, maybe this year I'll hear the shofar, maybe this year I won't. Should I go to the sukkah? I, I'm a woman, I don't have to. Says Rav Gustman, once we've reached the conclusion that a woman's mitzvah is just as significant as a man's, so it's true, again, he's not denying that, again, remember my, my metaphor of uh, the, the, the old-fashioned film or the comic strip. There is that first box. A woman is not strictly obligated. 
So says Rav Gusman, yes. And if she really can't do it, it's okay that she didn't. She won't get punished. Unlike a man who will get punished. She, she has that benefit. But lo l'chinam levatlam. Not stam. I'm lazy. I'm sitting in my bed. I'd rather eat the sandwich. Why do I have to go down into the sukkah? Now if you would have asked me, I'm not going to ask you what you do, but if you would have asked me, I might have thought, let's get Shasani Kirtzono. You're lucky. You don't have to. Lama, you know, Lama Kain, Lama Lo. It's up to you. Rav Gusman disagrees. You are supposed to be in the sukkah. You're supposed to be in the shul for shofar. It's not, not, st- your mitzvah is just as important as a man's. Technically, you're not obligated. Okay, so what that means is, in the mikra, b'midasheh, in the, if you really have a problem, you have more flexibility than a man does. But if you don't have attention, if there's not really a problem, don't stomp, don't disregard it. I think this is so important. Again, we spoke about this, I can't remember if it was in the shir or after the shir, because we had some extended conversation after last week's shir, some of us. So I don't remember when this came up, but I, I think, but maybe it was even in the shir, I said that I, one of the tragic things is subconsciously, not all, but many girls and women get the message that their mitzvahs are less than. So even the things that they're obligated in, let alone the things they're not obligated in, they take less seriously. Right? They feel women's Judaism is sudbet. God cares less about my mitzvahs. So not only is that obviously not true on anything that a woman is obligated in, that's for sure not true. Says Rav Gusman, it's also not true even on the things you're not obligated in. Who still wants equality? <laughs> equality of obligation, equality of burden. Says Rav Gusman, you don't just stomp, get, get rid of this. Your mitzvahs are good. Elim lo mitnesha mitzvah overes or mitzvah tirchais. It's really it's an impossible thing. Okay, so you don't have to put a you know shake the lulav. But if it's not impossible, just stomp. I'm lazy. I'm not going to shake a lulav. How dare you? You're a woman, and your mitzvahs count. Of course, you should do the mitzvahs. And all goes back to this uh, very important point. Okay, any questions on this? This is the, that's the, again we it's a little bit of a bridge and he's saying this even in a halachic essay he's not writing hashkafa essay he's writing a halacha essay this is a gemara shir he gave he really really believes this and I think he's right I think he makes a very very compelling very compelling case okay let's turn over the page and we just have about ten more minutes but this is the the faster easier part maybe the more controversial part I don't know um, but last but not least I wanted to discuss I think there's no reason to not discuss um, I wanted to discuss um, the the why question the philosoph- philosophical question. We saw already, going back to last week's year, that the, the reason that women are exempt from mitzvos is Doraisa. wasn't something that quote-unquote rabbis did. Right? This is Torah Shabbat. We understood. We actually saw the source based on tefillin that women are exempt from that. And that was understood to be a binyanav for all mitzvah man grama. So if you ask me halachically why are women exempt, the answer is a special drasha. However, inquiring minds want to know, why would God do that? So this is the same, is a very reasonable question, but it's important for some context. It's the same question, or at least it ought to be the same question, no, more no less, as why would God make anyone sit in the sukkah? Why would make anyone put on tefillin? Why, why does God care about anything? Right? Why does Hashem want me to put on tefillin? Why does Hashem want me to daven? Why does Hashem want me to not eat um, milk and meat? That's a reasonable question. I'd be very interested in certain things that I'm not allowed to eat. I would be happy to eat them. Certain things, lobster does not appeal to me at all. But plenty of other things do. You know those McDonald's commercials uh, when I was a kid? Oh, mouth-watering. A Burger King, I can't remember which one I liked. But I was always like, ah. You, know, you go to the baseball game with your dad, you know, and like, you know, again, this, I didn't grow up in uh, New York in the 1990s or 2000s or Baltimore where, where there's kosher concessions and these things. When I was a kid, going to the baseball game meant you, when you were a Jew, you felt sugbet. Because everyone around you was eating the tray of hot dogs and everything. And, you know, mommy gave me like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. 
you know, and, and then you say, again, and this is the difference between grandkids and kids, because I remind my parents all the time, when they would take me to things, and I had a very wonderful childhood, but when I would then ask, can I get a soda or something else? No, the treat was you went to the game. The treat was you went to the amusement park. My kids asked them, what do you want? How many sodas can I get you? That's the difference between grandchildren and children. Right? I grew up, again, I'm not, not complaining at all. Uh, I grew up with a wonderful childhood. But I cannot tell you how many times you go to the amusement park. Can we also get you know, a t-shirt? Can we also get a soda? No. What about a treat? The treat is that you're here. This is a very continu- uh, a consistent line uh, of my childhood. Okay? So there are a lot of things you would want. But Hashem said no. Hashem said you have to keep kosher. But why? So this is the enterprise, as we all know, that is referred to as Tameh HaMitzos. What are the reasons for the mitzvahs. And again, this could really be a series. Maybe next year the whole series should be. Tommy Mitzvahs, the why of the what. Right? Huge literature, huge literature. Going back to the Gemara, and even pre-Gemara even. First of all, is, should we be looking for reasons? Can any human being really understand the infinite will of God? Is, what's the day? is it a good thing to look for reasons? Is it a bad thing to look for reasons? How do you ever know if you've got the right reason? This is nothing to do with women's issues. This is about every mitzvah. Why should you have Basar Bachalov? You know, is that a chok? Is there a reason? What's the reason? How would anyone know what the reason is? Is there a good thing to look for reasons? Is it a dangerous thing to look for reasons? Once, you know, if you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you like the reason, good. But if you don't like the reason, then you're not going to do it. There's a massive, massive literature. So within that, but the bottom line is, to, to, you know, to take an entire graduate school course and summarize it in one sentence, the more consensus view is to be cautiously pro the enterprise of Tommy Mitzvot. And that's, it's a, what I just said is a debatable statement. Uh, in the sense of it was debated over time. But we generally, as a general rule, the consensus seems to be that uh, we do think that there is something positive to look for uh, and speculate about the reasons for mitzvot, even though, again, Gedolim throughout the centuries were always wary of and aware of the potential pitfalls of that. Aside from the pitfall of you know, people not liking the reason and therefore not doing the mitzvot, which would be the major problem, the most important thing to recognize before we then actually get to this issue now is and this is, I think, a very important, two important points. I kind of alluded to both of them, but let me just say them both quickly, and then we'll see the specific sources very briefly. Number one is, most importantly, I'd say, is that there's a difference between halacha and tamay mitzvot, in that tamay mitzvot can never, I don't care who it is, it could be the Rambam, who's very famous, all of Mor not all, a significant part of Mor is giving reasons for mitzvot. So it's very distinguished uh, pedigree to be offering mitzvot, all the way down to, let's say, Shimshon Rafal Hirsch, was very famous in his generation for giving reasons for mitzvot. And everyone in between and everyone since, all of them can never be more than mere speculation. Nobody knows for sure. We cannot say, with, just like we, we, we could say we have a Masorah that, you know, Sfirat Omer starts on the first day, after the first day of Pesach, and we can say for, for sure that we have a Masorah that women are part of Mishnah Magrama. Why does Sfirat Omer start that way? Why are women exempt? Just to give two completely random examples. We can speculate. Number one is we can never know for sure. Number two is, and this is something that I think I heard this from Ravar and Soloveitchik, it's very apropos that we call them not sibot, but ta'ameh ha-mitzvot. Why? So I think the answer that I heard from him was so powerful. He said, it's like with food. The real reason you eat is for the nourishment and for the health. But it tastes a little bit better. If it tastes better, it's, 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 you know, who wouldn't want it to, you know, a little extra salt, a little extra taste? But that's not the real benefit of the food. The real benefit of the food is I would die if I didn't eat. But once I'm eating anyway, it might as well taste good. Mitzvah, the reasons are the same thing. The reason we do the mitzvahs are because that's what Hashem said. And we presumed that He had good reason to do so. But if I'm eating my broccoli anyway, wouldn't I rather that it taste good? So if I understand, most people, not everyone, 
It's interesting, not everyone really is like this. I think some people prefer the blind faith. But for most people, if they understood why they were doing something, it would be more meaningful. In that sense, it's a tom. It adds a second layer of benefit. It's not the main reason you do it, but it does add a little bit of a, a, little bit of a, of a tom. So with all that background in mind, um, now let's see what I found. Again, Akui, there's more than out there. I found six different presentations for the why question. Why would the Torah exempt women from Mitzvah Grama? And the truth of the matter is, it's six, which are really two. In the sense that I think, as, you'll, as I'll show in a moment, the first four are more or less saying the same thing, and the last two are, in their own way, more or less saying the same thing. So really, as far as I could tell, and again, there might be things I don't know about. If you're aware of or if you find something, I'd be happy for you to share it with me, and I'm happy to share it with other people. But what I found was two broad approaches, which have maybe uh, altogether uh, six nuances. The first broad approach, uh, which you have in the first four sources on the back of the page, um, goes is the earliest one. I gave you source number 14 is the Abu Draham, if I'm not mistaken, and I may, or maybe, I think he lived in the 14th century. Um, he was one of the Rishonim, a little bit less well-known than others, but one of the Rishonim. But other Rishonim say the same thing. His theory, which then gets kind of distilled and adapted and clarified and nuanced over the centuries, but his theory is that women are exempt from Tamiya Mitzvos because they have a conflict. The conflict in his formulation is the commitments to their husband. Right? When you got married, you accepted responsibilities towards your husband. Now, it's true that he also accepted certain responsibilities towards you. That was a ksuba, in case you didn't know. Uh, even, even if it wasn't written a ksuba, he'd still be obligated in many of those obligations. But says the Abu Draham, he thinks, Im Zman grama has to be done at a certain time. What if there's a certain responsibility that the wife had to her husband at that very same time? Maybe there's something that he needs, and now she's caught between a rock and a hard place. Now, what's fascinating is not only his description of the tension. If you would have said, your child or your husband in this case needs something, or God needs something, who should win? I would have thought for sure God. But says the Vudram, the Torah itself said, God said, I want to be Mavater. Could God have said, too bad for the husband, listen to me? God could have. Of course. But Hashem says, according to the Vudraham, I'd rather there be marital harmony. After all, very famous, uh, he uses it as, as a metaphor, but it's a, this is a halacha in Chumash, right? If, if you had a marital disharmony out to the Kekach, that there's a question of a sota, how do we prove a sota's innocence? We take shame Hashem. This is really Lotis. We take shame Hashem, we erase it, we mix it in the water, and hopefully if she's innocent, it brings back marital harmony. And the Gemara itself is aware, how can we do such a thing? And Gemara says, because Hashem thinks that a husband and wife getting along is so important, he'd rather his own name be erased. And this is what it will take to re-establish trust uh, in a marriage. So says that Vujraham, this is not even as extreme as that, but he says, in a more mild sense, Hashem says, I'd want to get in between a husband and, her wife, and his wife. If there's going to be conflicts, I'd rather there be a happy marriage, it's okay, she doesn't have to do certain mitzvahs. This is the theory, very famous, and the theory of the uh, Abu Draham. Again, we read most of the important parts uh, inside. If you look at the end of the second line, Im She'll do the mitzvah, and she'll ignore what her husband wants. Right? Then her husband might be upset. On the other hand, if she, does the mitzvah, if, if she doesn't do the mitzvah, and she just does what her husband wants, Then Hashem might be upset. If Hashem had left it as, as, a, as a conflict, She'd be stuck. She'd be in an impossible situation. Hashem says, I take a second, I take a back seat. Again, very, very chivalrous and very uh, magnanimous from a certain perspective. 
Okay, but that's the Avudraham's theory. Before you ask any questions on it, I just want to point out that if you take a look at the release in sources 15 and 16, and a little bit in 17 as well, you have variations of this. Okay, we don't have time to read it inside, although the Hebrew is not that hard for those who want to look at it inside. In source number 15, you have Rav Uziel. Rav Uziel was the first Sephardic chief rabbi of the state of Israel. When Rav Herzog was the Ashkenazic chief rabbi, he was the Sephardic Rishon Letzion. And he more or less says the same thing, but I'm just pointing out that he doesn't use the word Lebala, a woman is responsible towards her husband. His line is, he refers to Meshubedet Lizman Be Mesnik Habayis. Household chores. So that might mean specifically the husband, but he also adds, Gidul Yeladim. It's not only to be a wife, also to be a mother. Similarly, in source number 16, Ramosha Feinstein says a similar point. That um, in the middle of source number sixteen, mutal gidul hayeladim vayeladot shehi. You know he adds. I'm not that anyone disagrees with it, but Moshe felt the need to say this explicitly. That raising children malacha hayoter chashuval hashemid barcholatar is the most important thing that a person uh, can do. And Moshe adds. Moshe is already living in the in America in the 20th century. Even in his day, in the Lower East Side, people already start having a shtickle guilt. Says Moshe, you'll tell me, but maybe I'm not respond. Maybe I don't have to worry about the kids. I have a babysitter. I have a nanny. When we used to live in the city, we, Alan and I were affiliated with a certain school in school. On the, at the beginning of the school day and the end of the school day, I promise you, you never saw a parent picking up or taking home their kids. You had a United Nations of nannies picking up the kids, right? So people can afford leisure because they have, they can afford to hire people, uh, to do things. So says Ramosha, I know that, but not everyone's gonna be rich and that's not how Allah works. We can't make certain exceptions of the rich people so their wives have to do the mitzvahs, but the poor ones women don't have to do the mitzvahs because they're gonna be too busy making, watch, watching the kids or doing the laundry because they can't afford a cleaning lady. Doesn't work that way, says Ramosha. And that's perhaps, you know, the question that someone might ask about all of this, which people have asked, which is, well, this only works for married women. What about single women? Before they were married, divorced, widowed. And it seems, you, you could say that's a good question, and therefore you don't like the theory. I'm okay with that. But you could also answer, no, again, the halacha works in categories. Women are a category, and since the hope is, and in most cases it is the case, hopefully for most of a woman's life, certainly most of her adult life, uh, she would be a married woman. So we're not going to you know, raise her with, until she's 21 or 22 or whatever, she should do the mitzvah. Then tell her she has to stop, and then when she gets widowed, God forbid, and when she's 85, then she'll do the mitzvahs again. We just made a rule. Again, that's what you have to say, presumably, uh, if you're taking the perspective of, of this approach. And in source number 17, you have uh, from also, uh, what is it, almost 40 or 50 plus years ago, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in a very famous address, which you can find on the internet. I just copied and pasted this from the internet. Uh, there's no one better than Chabad at putting stuff out on the internet. They're amazing. Um, so you have the entire written text. There's probably a video, I mean audio too, but this is the written text of the, the Rebbe's uh, Sicha uh, to the women. And he speaks about the unique mission of women. And again, he, ta- he keeps on talking about women are potter from the mitzvahs because of their unique mission. The only thing he specifically refers to when he says unique mission on the second line is child's education, meaning children, the role, a woman's role uh, of a mother. He also adds something from a Kabbalistic perspective, which is interesting. He says that you should know that you are connected to the mitzvahs because you get schar when your husband does that mitzvah. That's a Kabbalistic idea. I don't know, that's not something I can explain to you why that would work rationally. But he says when a, when a man learns Torah, the woman gets the same schar. And, or similarly, when he shakes the lulav, she doesn't shake the lulav. Right, that, that, that's a, a separate point that Lubavitch Rebbe added. You see that towards the end. He says that. Uh, but even before that, again, it's basically all this idea that there was a tension. You know, time, time regulated mitzvahs created certain urgency. The women have other responsibilities, whether it's to their home, to their husband, to their kids, or maybe that's three ways of saying the same thing. And Hashem decided he'll take a back seat. I'd rather you be a better mother and wife. And, uh, don't worry about these 
what turns out to be eight mitzvahs. Okay, all of that is theory number one. If you like it, if it is meaningful to you, that's great. If you don't, it was just a theory. That's theory number one. Theory number two is more modern, although, you know, 20th and 19th century. You have Rav Shimshin Fall Hirsch in source number 18, and Rav Aaron Soloveitchik in an incredible essay uh, here in source number uh, 19. And they both, bothly take a completely different perspective. Not that there was a tension and therefore God said, I don't want to be the source of harm, you know, marital harmony or making a woman a bad mother. Rather, they say simply, you know why women are not obligated? Because they didn't need the misfos. Ravarin Salvechik, again, I, it's a long essay. I just gave you small little parts of source number 19. But Ravarin Salvechik is very, very clear. And he says, I gave you a little bit of it. He says that there are dimensions of a woman's spiritual personality which are superior to that of men. Rav Hirsch doesn't say exactly like that, but Rav Hirsch says something very similar as well. Look in the middle of source number 18. The Torah takes for granted that our women have greater fervor and more faithful enthusiasm for Hashem and their calling, etc., than men. What they both add, what Rav Hirsch and Rav Aaron Salvechik also basically point out is, they think that whether it's nature or nurture, Rav Aaron Salvechik is definitely talking about nature, Rav Hirsch seems to be talking about a little bit about both. Rav Hirsch definitely talks about nurture as well. He says the experience of women, again in his day, in Germany, his day, he says women weren't typically in the workforce. So, so they need, they had less temptations, they had less things to make them more coarse, and therefore it wasn't as necessary for women. In addition to the fact that he says women by their nature are on a higher spiritual level, Aaron Salvation doesn't say anything about working or not working, probably because by the time Aaron Salvation was writing this, maybe it was more common for women to work out of the house than it was in Hirsch's day. But Aaron Salvation does say, you know, very, very, uh, you know, impassioned, he definitely believes this very strongly, that women are uh, on a higher level. He talks about the innate dangers of being a man and the natural abundance of energy in which a male, if not tempered and not controlled, can be released in a very destructive manner. And therefore, men needed these obligatory commandments, etc., etc., as opposed to women who did not need them. So this is basically a second approach, which is to say we have, our, we're supposed to perfect ourselves. The mitzvahs are there to perfect us. So if we, what does a lotase mean? You're already in a good place. Don't do this because it'll make you into a bad place. So on that, men and women are equal. We saw that, yes, last week. Right? On Lotus says men and women are equal. But an assay means, right now you're deficient. Do this to elevate yourself. Women need less elevation, therefore they have less mitzvahs to uh, elevate themselves, at least in an obligatory sense. Again, it could be that one or both of these you find very compelling and very inspiring. That would make me very, very happy. It's also possible that you think, and it doesn't take much to think of what some of the logical questions one could ask on one for both of these. That's why I say these are both uh, attempts and speculations. No one can know for sure. No one can know for sure, just like we can never know for sure why Hashem told us not to eat milk and flesh and uh, at the same time, and no one told us that we can't eat shatnas, uh, where shatnas. These are speculations, but these are, again, as far as I know, uh, the two schools of thought that at least theorize why there might be this uh, gender difference uh, in halacha. But again, I end with, with where we began uh, at the end of la- at the start of last week's year, which was it's absolutely clear uh, from halacha and from sources that on the single most important question of Salam Alukim, Kedushas Yisrael, there's absolutely no difference between men and women. Okay.